I think as many of you know, I, uh, I, joined, I joined the U.S. Coast Guard when I was 19 years old. And in July of 1994, I set foot on uh, Coast Guard Basic Training Center, uh, Cape May, New Jersey. That's where boot camp was. I was, of course, nervous and excited all at the same time. I really wanted to do well at this. I wanted to uh, make a mark, stand out, whatever it was. So uh, after we, you know, we all got lined up like cattle and our heads shaved off, or at least the men, the women had short hair, right? And then we all got these uniforms, and um, and as soon, I was just waiting for my chance to be able to uh, to excel, right? So foolishly, I, uh, I raised my hand and volunteered as soon as they asked for volunteers for something. I didn't know what it was. And me and three other fools were then taken to a back room where we were informed of what we had volunteered for, which was to label urinalysis cups as they came out all hot and sometimes moist on the outside from the other recruits who had lined up. <laughs> now, of course, from that experience, I learned a lesson uh, in the military. Don't ever volunteer for anything unless you know exactly what it is and, if possible, get it in writing. Um, Yeah. I share this story because it represents a common fear I think many of us have about the way the world works. As we get older, it often happens that we get more and more defensive, more and more cynical about the world. We get cynical, uh, expecting governments, organizations, and leaders to always have an angle. We grow up with the mentality that there is no free lunch, and that if something is too good to be true, it usually is. And unfortunately, in this world, in the fallen state that it is, those sayings are often true. But in God's kingdom, and in God's economy, those rules don't apply. When dealing with God, he is always faithful and just. When God calls us to a task, he usually doesn't ask for volunteers, by the way, he usually calls us to a task, he assures us that he is with us. And even if the task is menial, it always matters if he calls us to it. And unlike some of our earthly bosses and bureaucracies, God is infinitely wise and infinitely good and he can always be trusted. Now, in the story we've been rooted in the last couple of months, Moses has learned the limitations of government and even the limitations of family connections. But he has come to have an encounter with the living God. Just last week, we read the story about Moses and his encounter with the burning bush and how he took the time to turn aside. He took time to appreciate something curious and beautiful, and it was there that God spoke to him. The Lord told Moses that he had been watching and that he had seen the plight of the Israelites and their slavery in Egypt. He told Moses, Moses, I'm going to come down and deliver the people. And not only that, but he was going to deliver them out of slavery and into a land of great abundance. Now, Who really knows what Moses was thinking and feeling when that announcement came down to him? At first, maybe he was thinking, great, I wanted this from the first time I saw that Egyptian taskmaster beating one of my Hebrew brothers. And then maybe his reaction of joy turned to a reaction of confusion. This is great news, but why are you telling me this out in the desert? Why are you talking out of a burning bush? That's weird. 
It just made me think of, uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't even go this way, but like, have you heard, have you, any of you encountered the Bushman in San Francisco? Anyone? Oh, Tommy! Yeah, so down by the Embarcadero where all the tourists go, there's this guy, you know, they have a lot of peddlers down there, and he, he hides behind a bush, like, not a real bush, like a, like a bunch of branches, and you just are talking to your friends or looking at sights, and all of a sudden he'll go, roar, and jump out, and if you get scared, you're supposed to give him change. It's awesome. But anyhow, so like, here's Moses just out way out in the desert, and like we said last week, he's nowhere near a temple or a place of worship. He's nowhere near home. He, there's no one else around except for his own sheep, and there God speaks to him, tells him this massive plan. I wonder if Moses was thinking, why are you telling me this out here? Well, let's pick up the story and find out. I want to encourage you to stand as we read uh, the book of Exodus, not the whole thing, just chapter 3, verses 10 through 22. And this is how it goes. So God has just told Moses what he's going to do for Israel. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Well, then Moses said to God, well, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to me, or sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to you Uh, to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I will do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house and articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians." Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as mysterious as it is, um, and sometimes hard to understand, by the power of your spirit, it is living and active and has a word for us today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to receive that word. 
that you would speak to me and to each of us uh, the word that we need to hear. Thank you that you always desire what's best, even if sometimes it hurts. Help us to receive you. Amen. You may be seated. So before I dive into this text, I just want to say something up front that I feel like I need to mention every once in a while. These stories that we're going through are, I mean, they're full of Moses stuff, right? Like Moses is the protagonist. He's, um, and a lot of times what can happen is we can fall into this trap of reading these things as if they're character studies or we're supposed to find some principles of things that Moses did or didn't do and we're supposed to follow those things. I don't think that's how we're supposed to approach these texts. And here's why. I think that the primary actor, like we said in Genesis the last few years when we were going through that, the primary actor is God. And these texts reveal something about God to us, his timeless character. And so as we, as we dive in, we, we're going to wrestle with Moses and some of the things that happens to him and some of the things that he asks. But really, let's be paying attention to who God is. Uh, the God who sent Moses is also the God who sends us. If we pull the camera back from this particular story just for a minute, we see that it's actually a lot like many of the stories in the Bible. God is consistent in that God intervenes to support his creation. He created the heavens and the earth. He created men and women in his image for the purpose of relating to us. Uh, we are created for worship. So it's no surprise then that in the story of Exodus, um, it's not merely freedom from slavery that God is talking about. It's freedom from slavery so that they can then go worship the God who rescued them. God gives us freedom from oppression so that we then have freedom for worship and abundant life. Now, when God chooses to intervene in the Bible, just like he does in this story, how does he often do that? He does it through people. Often, he intervenes through people. Think about it. When God creates the heavens and the earth, how does he decide he's going to cultivate creation and unlock its creative potential, as Andy Crouch likes to put it? How, how, how does God choose to do that? Well, he chooses to do that through Adam and Eve and their descendants. And when God chooses to judge the earth in, in the book of Genesis, how does he repopulate it? Does he just start from scratch with a new species? No, he works through Noah and a family. When God wants to rescue the world by blessing it and drawing people to himself, how does he do that? Does he, does he airdrop a, a, an owner's manual of how to live, or does he set up an oracle where people have to come and do certain things to hear him? No, he, he blesses a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, and he chooses to work his, his plan out through a family who become a nation, who become a people that we are grafted into. In Exodus, God has worked through the faithfulness of, a he, of Hebrew midwives, of the faithfulness of an Egyptian princess, the faithfulness of Moses' courageous sister to bring about deliverance as, she, uh, as he's drawn from the river, and she has the courage to point uh, the princess of Egypt, to Moses' mother to nurse him. It is Moses being shown hospitality, not just by this ethereal God, but by a man named Jethro, and he marries one of Jethro's daughters named Zipporah. It is through people that God chooses to work. And in the story before us this evening, God has just said, I am going to come down and I am going to deliver my people. 
And then we get informed of how he's going to do that. It's through Moses, through a person. Now, probably caught off guard, Moses asks a simple but powerful question. Who am I that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Now, I see at least two aspects that we can probably relate to this question. First, there is the doubt that Moses may be experiencing from past rejection. His question, who am I that you would send me? I think he's thinking of the the past pain he was inflicted. When he was a uh, much younger man, uh, a much more powerful man, uh, Moses intervened to help the sons of Israel, uh, one of the men who was being oppressed by an Egyptian taskmaster. He thought he was doing the right thing. But when he went out the next day and interacted with two of his Hebrew brothers, he was totally cut down. These men, whom he wanted to help, rejected Moses. They didn't recognize his authority, and they said, with a snarky flair, I imagine, who made you prince over us? It's since the sarcasm. It's the last recorded conversation Moses has with a Hebrew brother or sister in the Bible before he's reunited with them. Before he goes into exile, that's the last thing he hears from the people of his blood relatives. Who made you prince over us? In light of that rejection, Moses' question, who am I, may be a very real expression of uh, a damaged self-worth. After all, the last words spoken uh, by his own people are words of rejection. And many of us, uh, I know, have memories of failure. Uh, We've received cutting words by other people. We have self-inflicted hatred that we uh, put on ourselves. We allow these tapes in our minds to tell us what we can't do. Uh, Someone you looked up to may have crushed your spirit when you were vulnerable. You've been told a lie, and you've bought into it about who you are and who you aren't. There's also a tension here in what's going on with Moses, so that's part of it. Um, Who am I is also a legitimate question. God in the Bible is the rescuer. It's God's job to deliver, so Who is Moses that he should be sent to do God's job? Who are we to think we can just change the world? Who are we to think we know better about how to live life than anybody else? See, both angles on Moses' question resolve, I think, in how God answers his question. First, notice that God doesn't simply address Moses' low self-esteem. I'm a firm believer that negative self-talk is bad. Okay, I think it's detrimental to our mental health. I believe in the value of mental health counseling, and when done well, I see it as a ministry of God, just as I see a medical doctor doing the ministry of God in healing. But I am not for simply telling someone, hey, it's okay, when it's not okay. Uh, Moses had all kinds of skills and training up to this point in his life. He has displayed growing qualities of a leader up to this point. He's received an amazing Egyptian education, the uh, education of Egyptian nobility. But God doesn't highlight those things. He doesn't pat Moses on the head and say, Son, you have what it takes. You're good enough to lead my people out of Egypt. Which leads us, secondly, to how God does respond. Rather than pumping up Moses' ego, God says something more important. Certainly, without a doubt, count on it. I 
will be with you. I will be with you. At this point, notice that Moses doesn't ask God, how am I going to do this? So like, what's your strategy? What exactly should I say to Pharaoh? Should I talk Hebrew or Egyptian? Because you know, I got both those skills. Should I come in strong with a weapon or, you know, well, he doesn't ask any of the how, those are the questions we would ask, I would ask, like the tactical questions. Moses doesn't go there. He wants to know who he is to even be asked to do this job, to which God replies, you're the one I'm with. You're the one I'm with. Moses doesn't get to see the big picture but he sees enough to know what the next step is to trust God. And that's how life with Christ is, I think. We're often called to be faithful in small steps, one day at a time, one decision at a time. We don't get to see the big picture, and frankly, I'm not sure I could handle the big picture or you could handle the big picture. It would probably freak us out if we knew the big thing that God was leading us up to. Now, last year, uh, Samara turned two in September of this year, so you know, right before she turned two, early summer, late spring, we had her at the spray park, I think Fairhaven Park or something, maybe Cornwall, and some kid was there, and she was toddling around, and he put his foot on one of the sprayers, and it just shot her in the face, and she freaked out, and from that point on, she didn't really care for water, Uh, and so later on in July, when we're up at Whistler, beautiful day, swimming pool, kids are all in the pool, a Samara would not even put her toe in the water, until she saw big sister Stella, um, jumping off the side of the pool and into my arms. And she saw Stella do it over and over again, and Stella coming up alive <laughs> and laughing. And before I, I could even hardly realize what was happening, I've got Stella just jump to me, I, you know, put her over on the wall, and here comes this thing jumping, it's Samara, and she's right there, and she just... She didn't know necessarily what was going to happen next. She certainly, certainly didn't have the skills to swim yet, but she knew the most important thing was that daddy was going to catch her, that I was there, right? And I'm pretty sure that that's um, how, how God works with us so much of the time, just trusting him in that next step. That's the thing with God, is that he works through people. But he doesn't use people. And that's an important distinction. Sometimes we say, uh, we, we pray prayers like, God, I just pray you would use me. Or we say like, oh, God really used me to do such and such. And I know exactly, and I say it too sometimes. I know what we mean when we say that, and it's a good thing that we mean. But it's not quite as accurate. So I kind of want to get nitpicky for a moment. Remember the movie uh, Mission Impossible, or like, I think there's five of them. And some of you remember the TV show before that, right? But in the movies, Ethan Hunt is the, kind of the, becomes the leader of the IMF, uh, the, um, the Impossible Mission Force. And he and his crew are these covert, uh, this covert team that protect the world from like high-level terrorists and criminals. And their work is so politically sensitive that sometimes the president doesn't even know what they're doing and all this stuff, right? So uh, cases come to Ethan Hunt uh, in cryptic ways through like laptops that burn up and all this stuff. But at the end of every like job proposal, he gets. Um, This is the line. As always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. In other words, we are going to use you to do this impossibly dangerous mission all on your own. And if you run into trouble, that's just what you'll be on your own. In fact, we're going to tell everyone we never knew who you were. Now, that's not at all what's going on with Moses. 
Because God doesn't use people. God relates to them. God is with them. So let me just say that a different way. God relates to us, and God is with us, and God always keeps his covenant. So even in this story, we see God working with and in and through Moses to fulfill a covenant he made a long time ago with Abraham. Uh, So here are a few examples. First, he wants Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God. Now, three days, I know that that, there's a cultural thing going on here, so let me just break this down real simply. In that culture, saying, I want to go on a three-day journey is a way of saying, I want to go a long, long way from here. It was Pharaoh knew without a doubt when Moses is saying a three-day journey, he's saying, we're leaving Egypt. We're not coming back. It's a way of saying, we are going. And um, one commentator said, we don't really have a way of saying this stuff in English, but uh, for example, if we're watching TV or something and I say to Corey or one of the kids, uh, hey, could you hand me the remote, please? What I'm implying is that I'm going to get the remote from you and then I'm going to watch what I want to watch, right? That's implied in that. Or if somebody says, uh, hey, do you have any money? It's implied that I want to borrow the money from you. There's always more than just the face value ask. So here Moses is going to Pharaoh saying, hey, we're going to go on this three-day journey. What he means is we're leaving. And that's why Pharaoh is so resistant to let him, I mean, why would Pharaoh have such a big deal about some of these Israelites going to worship for three days? He resists because this is a, uh, a, an exodus. I mean, this is, God is telling them to, to go out for good into the, to the journey. Um, now, God would fulfill his covenant to bring the descendants of Abraham to a good and spacious land. So he's going to fulfill that covenant through Moses. Uh, and then he promised Abraham that he would bless his descendants and curse those who curse his descendants. And that's what he's talking about in verse 22 when he speaks to the women, about the women leaving Egypt with gold and silver and clothing. So the, the idea is that um, these Egyptian women are, might be household slaves uh, are, the, the Israelite women are household slaves in the Egyptian homes. And before the exodus, they're going to get the gold and the silver and then fine clothing from these Egyptian women and take it with them because they're dirt poor as slaves and they're going to come out wealthy. And by mentioning women plundering the Egyptians, it shows God's powerful hand that you would take the weakest members of society and having the women plunder this mighty nation. It's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. God would be with Moses. Which leads Moses then to a second question. Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and they're going to say, um, and I'm going to say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they might ask me, well, what's his name? Well, what should I say? What what should I say his name is? There's two realities going on here. First, Moses' last encounter, trying to exert his leadership, remember how that turned out? Uh, The Hebrews rejected him, right? They didn't recognize his authority. So in one sense, this question is really asking, so when I get back to Israel, to the sons of Israel uh, enslaved in Egypt, um, in whose authority shall I say I'm coming? Because they didn't really respect me last time. Okay? Which leads to a second reality. It's not that the Israelites don't know God's name. It's that Moses doesn't know God's name. Moses was raised in Egypt for nearly 40 years, and for roughly 40 years, he's been living under the roof of Jethro, a pagan priest. And in this culture, uh, polytheism was a big deal. I mean, there are many gods for everything. There's gods for the river, and gods for the the dirt, and the bushes, and the animals, and uh, for fertility, and all these kinds of things. So Moses is steeped in all of this stuff, and here's something 
divine is speaking to him out of this burning bush, but he's got to know, which God are you? Who do I say sent me? There's like lots of them, apparently, right? In other words, you say you're going to be with me, but who is the I in the I will be with you, right? Who, is the, who are you? It's a great question, and God gives this answer, I am who I am. So say to them, I am sent you. This first part of what God says, I am who I am, is a description about God. It's not really his name. It's notoriously hard to translate, and it could be any of these things. Uh, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I create what I create. Uh, The bottom line is, is that um, God is not just some local deity. He's not just some created God or some God amongst many. I am who I am is not just a description. It's actually a verb, not a noun. It means that God is dynamic, creative, unbounded. It means that this God that is talking to Moses is self-determining. He has always been. He is alpha and omega, beginning and end. He is above all things. He simply is without any strings attached. You know, the gods of the ancient Near East, it was believed that you had to feed them like, that's why they did all these burnt sacrifices that you know, the gods will get hungry, so you got to feed them and you got to take care of them. God is saying, I'm above all of this. I created it all. I'm self-sustaining. I always was. I always will be. That's what I am, who I am means. And his name is simply, I am. In Hebrew, Yahweh. Knowing the name of God would certainly give Mo- Moses credibility Uh, the credibility he needed with the elders of Israel. But more than that, knowing the name of God meant that Moses could have a personal relationship with him, that when he supposedly was going to lead the people out and come back to this mountain to worship, he would know who he's worshiping. The psalmist makes a big deal out of getting to know the name of the one we worship. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know, if you don't know God, all the good stuff that happens in your life, you just kind of like, you know, I even have a neighbor like this. I thank the universe for, what does that even mean? I just, you know, yay, good stuff happened. But to be able to ascribe to the Lord glory and honor and blessing is such a gift to be able to, to say thank you to someone who has given us all good things. And by the way, this is where the argument um, that God is the God of all religions that just breaks down into nonsense. God does not say, you know, he could have said, I am all things to all people, or I am the great universal. Uh, But God does not tell Moses that all roads lead to me, or, uh, hey, Moses, by the way, on your camel, put a coexist sticker. He has a specific name and specific attributes that are not only different from attributes of so many other gods in the ancient Near East, but they're almost always directly opposed, like, don't sacrifice your children to Molech. And, you know, he's very different than the other gods. So now God, or Moses knows that God is sending him to rescue the people, that God is with him in mission, and that it is God who, um, the God who's with him is none other than Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who has been faithful to his covenant people forever. And when Yahweh 
wants to rescue and restore and recreate, he sends people. In this case, he's sending a shepherd named Moses. He was with Moses in a real and personal way. But I think that the story of Moses, and I hope you would agree, points to an even greater sending on the behalf of Yahweh. You see, God would be with Moses and the people would be free from oppression, but they would still be enslaved to their own sin. It's the human problem. I mean, without just a few weeks or months after being released from captivity of Egypt by Yahweh, they're going to get antsy and worship a molten calf. They just can't help themselves. They had a problem, and we've all got it. It's your problem. It's my problem. I can't get away from the fact that every single day I struggle against my own old me. And I'm sure that on a regular basis, you are well aware of the forces of influence vying for your will. Sometimes it's easy for you to love, and sometimes you're frankly ashamed of the things that you've thought or said or wanted to say. With the Apostle Paul, our spirit's cry is, wretched person that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will God send to set all creation free from sin and death? And the answer, of course, is that God would send a person. It's just like him. It's what he does in the Bible. In fact, like Moses, this man was referred to as a shepherd. He's the good shepherd that Emily read about earlier. This man was obedient one step at a time, knowing that God was with him, knowing that Yahweh was his father. This man, this shepherd, had lots of his own power, lots of his own authority, but he chose to rely on the authority of his father, doing only the things that his father showed him. When God intervenes in the world, he sends someone. Through the mystery of mysteries, he sent part of himself, his own son, Jesus, who is called Christ or Messiah, Jesus, the one who exists from all eternity, who is one with God. Jesus is not just a man who became a leader known as the good shepherd. In fact, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John's gospel, there are at least seven, I think a few more, instances of Jesus proclaiming, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. He's picking up right on this identity, the I am of of God revealing himself to Moses, this Yahweh. Jesus is saying, I am one with that one. I am. He's none other than one with the living God who revealed himself to Moses. And yet in the ultimate act of love and sacrifice, God himself became flesh, dwelt among us. He became human so that humans could come and be reconciled to God. He died and rose again, defeating death, freeing us from bondage to sin and judgment. And when we align ourselves with this good shepherd, with Jesus, through faith, we are promised forgiveness, yeah. But more than that, We're promised resurrection and life in a new world. We're promised the hope that those candles we lit earlier are pointing to. Faith in Jesus means that we can hope in a recreation 
where the broken things are put right, where our bodies, the resurrected bodies we'll have won't break down, where relationships will be whole and rich and unmasked. I can't even hardly imagine what that would be like to be always unmasked, free to be who I really am without fear. Hmm. And if you don't yet have that type of hope in you, I urge you, Christ urges you, you can place your trust in him today. You can invite him to be the good shepherd of your life. He's the great I am, the good shepherd who gives his life that you and I might find ours. And there's more to this message than just that. For those of you who currently follow Jesus, who have placed your faith in him at some point in your life, know that this sending God also sends you. You're salt and light. You are sent to be a blessing into the world. He sends you and me into our places of work and into our places of education and into our our places of uh, buying and selling of commerce into our places of entertainment. He, he sends us to salt and light into places of eating and drinking. He sends us to reflect his goodness and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded us. And just like God said with Moses, Jesus says to us, I am with you always until the end of the age. Lord, it strikes me when the angel came uh, to Joseph. Uh, he declared that uh, your name would be Emmanuel, the with us God. Thank you, Father, for not being uh, a God who is petty and vindictive, a God who just uses. Thank you that you are a God who relates, a God who includes a God who blesses us through giving us dignifying work. It is, it is honorable to be sent by the living God. And thank you that you are uh, promised to, to be with us, not just to, to rescue us from a future event, as wonderful as that is. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for including us in your work now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. That through faith in Christ, through our baptism, you dwell in us. You breathe new life into us. You remind us of the teachings of Jesus. You help uh, put a check in our spirits and our hearts so that when we're battling against the flesh, you make it possible uh, for us to choose well, to choose the way of life. Thank you that you remind us when we screw up and when we choose the way of death, you remind us that we are adopted children of God, that we are made new in Christ You remind us of our forgiveness and you allow us to repent and turn back to you time and time again. Oh Lord, help us to receive you afresh today. Amen.